Last Sunday morning, we, Charlene and I, found ourselves at a site of an attack on the United States almost 60 years ago as we were at Pearl Harbor. And uh, it was kind of an amazing time while there was a problem with the Arizona Memorial docking, so we didn't get to go out to that. It was still quiet, it was still solemn, and we still felt the weight of that time. If you're over 25 years old today, you have a recollection. You have a recollection of Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001. I know what I was doing that day. In fact, 2001 was a significant year for us as a family. You see, just a few weeks prior to September 11th, we had been on what would be the last vacation the five of us would take as a family. We had been gone out for a while in California and Arizona visiting family and we flew back in, and within two days after flying back in, we took our eldest down to Moody Bible Institute, and she began her uh, studies there. So now, two weeks later or so, we're at our home. I was getting ready to leave to head towards Chicago. In fact, very interesting, I was going to the Chicago area because our missionary, who is still our missionary today, Kirk Reynolds, was at the time working in the Lawndale neighborhood. And they had, uh, he and his partner had been working with the city of Chicago, and they were getting ready to purchase properties that were vacant, and they were going to be building low-income housing, affordable housing for people in the Lawndale neighborhood. So on that day, September 11th, 2001, they were hosting, you'll, you'll, you'll be surprised about this, a charity golf tournament, a charity golf outing, and I was going to be playing in that with my friend Steve. And so we were getting ready to, uh, I was getting ready to go, you know, Bethany's down at Moody, Jessica's already at high school, David's getting ready to go to elementary school, and uh, I get a phone call. One of our elders was on the other side of the phone, on the other end of the line. And he said, turn on the TV, Monsig. We're under attack. I turned on the TV, and I saw the smoke billowing from the first tower. The announcers were all trying to make sense of what happened. And just listening to what he said, seeing that, I knew he was, he was right. Not knowing all that was going on, not knowing how that would eventually affect us, I knew this was a problem. But what do you do? Everybody else in the entire country that day continued on for a while with their lives. Steve picked me up. We went down, played the golf outing, walked into the clubhouse, and somebody said both the towers had, been, had collapsed at that point. We took note as we drove home after the lunch and the presentation that there was something strange around Chicago. There was not a plane in the sky. I would guess that over the next 20, over the past 24 to 48 hours, many of us have reflected on the events of that day. 
That's one of those moments you do remember what you're doing. You remember where you were. You remember when you found out. I would say we should never forget the courage of the first responders on that day who when everybody else was running from the towers, they were running to the towers. And many of our first responders who lost their lives. We should never forget the people who were just going to work that day and ended up losing their lives. Don't forget the families of, the loved, one, of loved ones who lost loved ones in New York City and at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. and in that field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. One day changed everything. That day changed us. It changed our country. It changed our world in ways that we could have never imagined. I recall in the week following, I would get a phone call every now and then. Are you hosting a prayer service? Sometimes people wouldn't call. There were several people that came and just knocked on the door or walked in and said, can I, can I just come into the sanctuary and pray? I was happy to say yes. It was a horrible time. It was a horrible attack. People were struggling to find solace. The security, the relative security of living in the United States of America had been shattered. It was either Wednesday or Thursday. I got in my van and I drove over to Northside Park. And I sat there. Me and my Bible. You see, I knew that I had to respond. But I knew that I didn't want to respond just from my own thinking. I wanted the Word of God to guide me. And I remember sitting there that morning and saying, Dear God, where, where should I go in your Bible to lead people through this time? That's a prayer I had prayed before in, in different areas of ministry I'd been in. God, where should I go? And God that day led me to Psalm 10. Psalm 10 is a prayer of lament for those who've suffered at the hands of another. And on Sunday, September 16th, I preached from Psalm 10. I'm not going to preach from Psalm 10 today. I encourage you to go read it and reflect on it. It was interesting what happened in our country. For the next few weeks, church attendance spiked. For the next few weeks, people all of a sudden were interested in finding something to do with God. But it only happened for a few weeks. You see, eventually, things went back to pre-9-11 levels, and sadly, church attendance from 2001 up until today continues on a slow decline. Rarely, rarely if ever over the next 20 years up until today did a stranger come and walk in the door and say, could I come into the sanctuary and pray? Hardly ever did that happen. This morning, as we reflect on that day, and as we come to the Word of God, 
I want us to take some time to think carefully about prayer. Prayer is to be a key reality in the life of anybody who follows Jesus. And it's not just something for when life is hard or confusing. It seems that's when so many people turn to prayer. I'm going to share with you today that I think it's more important to that. It was important 20 years ago. It was important for those people to seek out God, to find solace. It was important, but it should have continued on. Now, we're in the early stages of a book uh, study, a kind of a study through the book of Acts. And I've billed this as looking at principles for the church. But here's the reality. The fact is, individually and collectively, we are the church. You see, the word in the New Testament that's translated church never, ever, ever means a building. This is a building. If we exited here, if we sold this building and it became a factory, it would not lose, it would still be a building. This is a building. It's got bricks and mortar and a roof over our heads. It's a building. You, me, we are the church. The word church that's translated church is a Greek word that means called out ones. It means those who assemble. So we're the church. So when we talk about principles for the church, I'm not talking about principles for the building I'm talking about principles for you and me. Now, the last time I was with you, uh, we looked at our first principle, and it was simply this. We need to trust in the reality, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit. Because when you get to the book of Acts, after the first part of chapter 1, Jesus is no longer physically present. He leaves. But he promised His disciples, he promised those who followed him that God the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, would be with them. And in John 14, he said he'll be with you and he'll be in you. We're going to develop that understanding of the Holy Spirit as we go along. But for now, we need to remember that principle that we need to trust the reality and presence of the power of the Holy Spirit and lean into and onto him. We need to think about those early followers. And just for a moment, let me kind of take you back. See, there was a group, we we think about the 12, but we, we discover, especially as we get into this first chapter of Acts, that there were others that kind of hung out with Jesus for three years. And, and for the 12 that were actually called apostles, we kind of try to think about it from a 21st century mindset. And in a 21st century mindset, we think, those guys were pretty irresponsible. They left their families and they left their their jobs and their careers to go wander around the countryside with Jesus? I mean, you know, my kids are all grown now, but if at one point one of my kids would have said, Dad, guess what? After I graduate from high school, I'm going to go hang out with Justin over here for three years. I'm just going to follow him around, and I'm going to learn from him. And I would go, whoa, 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 who's paying for this? Oh, don't worry about it. All, everything's taken care of. Oh, really? Is he independently wealthy? No, we're going to trust God for everything. Now, we look at that and go, what? That doesn't make sense. But in the first century, when a rabbi 
came up to one of your sons and said, follow me. That was a high calling. As a family, you were blessed. He wants my son to follow him? That's amazing. And there are scholarly studies to suggest to be chosen by a rabbi was the highest of compliments. In the first century, you weren't neglecting your responsibility to follow the rabbi. You were doing God's will. You were doing what you should do. So within that mindset of following this rabbi, you think about it. Those that followed him, even though Jesus told them repeatedly, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be convicted, I'm going to be crucified, but don't worry, I'm going to raise again on the third day. They were told that repeatedly, and yet none of them expected that it would really happen. And none of them expected that he would die a criminal's death. None of them even expected that he would rise again from the grave. And when he did, it blew their minds. But then none of them expected he would leave. But he did. And for his three years of ministry and the 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus modeled many things for his disciples. But I think one of the most important things that he modeled for them was the discipline of prayer. And for Jesus, prayer wasn't a discipline as much as it was a relationship. It was important for him to touch base with his heavenly father on a regular basis. It was important for him to model that for his closest followers. I am convinced more and more, day in and day out, that prayer is one of the most important aspects of my faith and of your faith because it's our main line of communication between Father, Son, and Spirit. And I'm also just as convinced that all of us, myself included, individually and as a called out group that we call a church, we got some improvement to do in this area. This week and next week, I want to look at some examples of prayer in the book of Acts. And what I want to do is build what I hope will be an encouraging model of prayer for you. Uh, it has been for me. Because I want us to learn how we can grow in this area. One thing that stood out for me back in 1996 and again in the early 2000s when I just went through the book of Acts looking for these principles was the importance of prayer. It just takes a casual reading of the book of Acts to see that prayer happens time and time again. In fact, prayer is clearly mentioned in 15 of the 28 chapters, and it's alluded to throughout the book. So this morning I want to give you my simple definition of prayer, and then we're going to see some aspects of it. But I want to begin with our principle. Here's the timeless principle. It's simply this. Individual and corporate prayer is to be a core reality in any church. Individual and corporate prayer is to be a core reality in any church. Now, like I say, I think we all have room to grow. Individually and corporately. Oftentimes I've heard it, I've heard it said... And I used to say this when someone would say, well, what is prayer? 
I would say, well, prayer is simply talking to God. Raise your hand if you've ever heard anybody say, prayer is just talking to God. Yeah, most of us have, right. But I've come to realize that definition falls short. You see, what happened in those few days when people walked through the door here and sat down there is they were talking to God and, and they were looking to God for answers because they were confused, they were frightened. They wanted God to let them hear from their loved ones. God, can you make that happen? And, and none of things wrong, nothing is wrong with any of that. That's all part of prayer. But the problem I find lately when I say prayer is talking to God is that it is therefore one-way communication. One-way communication is not relationship. It's maybe different for prayer. The kind of prayer that Jesus modeled was relational. And so I've adjusted my definition. Here's my new definition of prayer. Every bit is simple. Prayer is communication between me and God. Prayer is communication between me and God. Communication, real effective communication, has to be two-way. Over the past week, Charlene and I have been on three different airplanes. It struck me again as I'm on those airplanes how vital communication is. Pilots must communicate clearly with air traffic control, and air traffic control must communicate clearly to the pilot. Then the, the pilot, the captain on the plane, needs to communicate clearly to the flight attendants so the flight attendants can communicate clearly to us, and the flight attendants must communicate with the captain clearly, and when we have opportunity, we can make our needs known to the flight attendants. It was kind of fun on the first flight because we're at the back of the first cabin. Uh, we were fortunate to have an empty seat so we could spread out a little bit. And it was right there where one of the flight attendants kind of stashed all her stuff. You know, she would change her shoes for the flight and she had some snacks and all. We had a chance to chit-chat a little bit, to talk back and forth. Where are you from? Oh, yeah, I live in the same, you know, she lives somewhere here in the suburbs. And we chatted a little bit. We had more than just kind of a, please take your seat, put your seatbelt on. It was, we had a little bit of conversation. Communication is part of a healthy relationship. Communication involves both speaking and listening. And notice I say listening and not hearing. See, hearing happens when your ears do what God designed them to do and they catch the sound waves and you hear them. You can hear and not act. Listening means that you not only hear, you understand and you act on what is heard. Communication always assumes some sort of relationship. Now, it can be a contractual relationship. Prior to our trip, I received a great deal of communication from the airline. I received a great deal of communication from the car rental company. I received a great deal of communication from the hotel. I received communication from different venues that we were choosing to visit. But my only relationship with any of those entities was, in essence, if you boil it right down, they wanted my money. 
They didn't want a friendship with me. They didn't want me to hang out with them unless hanging out with them meant staying longer or driving further or flying further. We weren't really friends. They just wanted a good Yelp review. But then we also received a great deal of communication from some of the folks involved with the wedding. Since that was the purpose of our trip, to go over and to officiate a wedding, and Charlene played a, a, an amazingly beautiful prelude, and we actually led in a couple of congregational songs and, and all of that. So there was a gal kind of coordinating everything. We got communication from her. We got a schedule from her. And, 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 and that was important because it helped us do what we were going to do, and it helped everything run smoothly. And there was a little more relationship. Some of you have communication issues or good things at your business or work relationship. Don't you get memos from different, you know, telling you different policies and all, or you get emails, or you have meetings with coworkers and bosses, and that's important because you need to communicate effectively. And in that work relationship, sometimes you build friendships. And communication makes everything go better. But the best best level of communication is a personal relationship. This is the level of relationship I'm convinced is the best and most healthy part of communication. And when I see prayer as a healthy part of my relationship with God, it takes it to a different level. In my closest human relationship, in my relationship with Charlene, we can communicate deeply and sometimes not even say a word. We are free in our relationship to express joy. We are free in our relationship to express sorrow. We are free in our relationship to express hurt. We are free in our relationship to express victory. We are free in our relationship to express frustration. And we are free in our relationship to express love. And if, and I believe it is, I believe God's word picture, in fact, I preached this a week ago Saturday, God's word picture for Christ and his relationship with the church as he gives us in Ephesians 5 is a husband and wife's relationship with one another. We in our healthy marriage relationships are to reflect that relationship between Christ and the church and communication must be a part of that. I'm concerned that maybe sometimes we have so formalized prayer that we no longer think even of God as a person and we drop the ball in communication. Prayer is communication between me and God. You know, last Sunday, as Joe walked us through his own story, did you happen to take note that it was when Joe and his brother were on the phone and his brother was praying for him that it was in that time of prayer as they communicated with God through the Holy Spirit, as they communicated in the depth of their heart that all of a sudden God gave clear guidance 
He gave some word pictures and he gave some comfort. It was through prayer that that happened. As they communicated with God, God, through the Holy Spirit, communicated with them and gave Joe some things to hang on to to help him through and to help him work through some difficulties in his own life. Prayer is not just talking to God. It's communication with God. And it's a two-way reality. Now, let's go to the book of Acts. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus has ascended into heaven. The, uh, the disciples go back. The, they all go back to the upper room. They're kind of hanging out. And verse 14 says, They all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Did you get that? What were they doing? They got together and they were just constantly in prayer. And note very carefully, Luke is very detailed here, it wasn't just the 12. Jesus' mom was there. She's praying. Some of the other women are there and they're praying. His brothers, who didn't believe him early on, all of a sudden things have changed and they're praying. Everybody had a seat at the table, as it were. We are not told the content of their prayer at this point. But I can hazard a guess. I believe they used their knowledge of the Scriptures to offer praise to God for the work of Jesus. They were beginning to realize how this all started to fit together. I believe they were marveling that they had seen the fulfillment of God's prophecies I believe they were asking God to give them the strength and courage to obey the first command that they had from Jesus in the book of Acts, and that was, wait. Help us wait. We want to wait for you. We want to wait for you to do your work. They were collectively in constant communication with God. And I would say there were times of silence as they enjoyed the presence of God. Now, what we discover here is that uh, Judas has already gone. Judas, uh, who betrayed Jesus, realized how wrong he was, went out and took his own life. It was a horrible thing. But they realized that, well, Jesus had chosen 12, and there's about a Luke uh, 1 or Acts 1 15 says there's about 120 people in this room. And Peter stands up, he's kind of the de facto leader at this point. Uh, you could see how that was appointed to him back in John 21. And Peter said, you know, Jesus chose 12 and we need to replace Judas. And so they give some uh, uh, thought behind that. And uh, Luke then describes, you know, what happened to Judas. And uh, so they say, okay, we need to choose someone to replace him. And they had some parameters. They needed to be with us from the beginning. Yeah, I find that very interesting. Uh, and We pick that up, uh, verse 21. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. See, never forget, we always kind of limit it to the 12. They were special chosen. They were part of the, we'll say the A team, but there was the B team around them too that were every bit as important. 
There were people that kind of wandered around, that wandered around with Jesus and saw everything and were involved, but they weren't part of the, the 12. They had to have been there from John's baptism to the time Jesus was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two guys, Barsabbas, also known as Justice and Matthias. We don't know anything about these two men in Scripture except what we read right here. That's all we know. They, they were with Jesus for three years. They saw everything. They were part of everything. Uh, and that's it. And, and so they, what did they do? They prayed. Listen, look at the content of this prayer. It's not a long one. Picks up in verse 24. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Here's the essence of their prayer. Lord, we can see their external qualifications and we see that, every, that they both fit the bill. Externally, experientially, their resume is perfect. If we put their resumes up here, they're, they're, there's really no difference. Lord, there's only one difference, and we can't see that. You know their heart. So, Lord, we're going to lean on you, and we're going to lean into you, and we're going to ask you to show us some way that we can understand their heart. Now, they did something very strange to us. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 disciples, or to the 11 apostles nobody, I did a little bit of reading and research on this, nobody really knows what casting lots was. The closest we have, and this is very crude, and I'll say it anyway, is throwing the dice. You know, get the old Yahtzee cup out. <laughs> Yahtzee, oh, it's you. I don't know what casting lots is, but I know what they were trusting. See, they were leaning on a verse from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Whether it was drawing straws or whether it was somehow flipping a coin, I don't know. But I know that they trusted God. They said, God, show us. You know the heart. Lead us to the one who has the right heart for this ministry. And it fell upon uh, Matthias. And he was added to the 11 apostles. And you don't read about him anymore in the Bible. He was there. But here's, the, here's, here's the, the principle I want you to remember. Important decisions should be preceded by prayer. Important decisions should be preceded by prayer. Think of the implications regarding the decisions you make. We make decisions about jobs. We make decisions about where we're going to live. We make decisions about a career. If we're at a certain age, we make a decision about what we're going to major in in college. We make decisions uh, about changing careers. We make decisions about retirement plans. And I want to ask, do you and I make it a practice to pray before we make important decisions? I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer that question for me. 
three years before Charlene and I even started the process of what would bring us here, I was ready to cut and run. I had been told I wasn't the person to step into a role like this in the church where I had served for almost 12 years. And I was told I was too young and too inexperienced and on and on and on. And when they brought in someone that was only a few years older than me, I was like, I'm done. But in communication with my wife, because I believe God leads us as a couple, she said, I don't think it's time yet. For three years we stayed. For three years we waited. For three years we prayed and we said, God, when is the time? God, we do believe you're going to move us on. When is the time? And one day I came home and she looked at me and I looked at her and I said, I kind of feel like we're done. And she said, yeah, I've been feeling that this week too. And eventually, you know the rest. Here we are. You're stuck with us. During that time of what they call candidating, I had one prayer that I put before the Lord. Lord, I only want to interact with one congregation at a time. I don't want to get into, oh, well, they're bigger. Oh, but they have a bigger salary. Oh, but they have this. Oh, but I didn't want to get into that. And you know, when we started the process in earnest with Pleasant Hill Community Church, Prior to that, I would get a letter or two a week. Hey, would you consider our church? Hey, what about our church? My name was in at, at, at Moody Referral Service or Moody Placement, and so they were sending lists out to every church. I was getting lists from them about churches that needed pastors. I had to put that away because I was looking at the wrong things. And when we started in earnest, after I met with Bill and a bunch of people down in Merrillville, Indiana, and we had pie and coffee and we talked, from that point until the day Pleasant Hill called us here, I did not get another letter from another church. I did not get another inquiry from another church. The week after I accepted the call here, a church called me and said, hey, would you consider us? I can't. I'm already committed. God answered that prayer. God, I just want one church at a time. I don't want to confuse them. God does that. And, and I felt that on that day, on that Wednesday or Thursday after 9-11, when I sat out there at Northside Park with my Bible and asking the Holy Spirit to show me the best passage, when I landed on Psalm 10 and I read it slowly, I knew that God had answered my prayer that this was the passage for us. While I had not done the research on lament at that point in time that I have now, it was a prayer of lament. And I had done that, I had prayed that prayer so many times. When I was in youth ministry, I would pray that prayer. When I oversaw our church counseling ministry, I prayed that prayer. When I was an administrator and had to make decisions, I prayed, God, show me how to guide this. When someone asked me to get involved in a business opportunity that would make me lots of money and it was... A pyramid scheme. I remember praying and saying, God, how do I respond to this person in a way that says, I don't want to do this, but I also don't want to offend you. And the Lord took me to a passage in 2 Timothy that says, no good soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. And I went, that's it. God's called me to do this, not to be a business person. I, I would be the worst business person ever. Pray before your decisions. Now, I get it. 
You don't have to pray about what socks to wear today or what socks not to wear today. You know, you, there's some freedom. When we were at Moody, a friend of ours working in the dining room talked about when she first came to know Christ and uh, her aunt said, hey, uh, I need you to live in with, they lived in a multiple, many folks in the family in the same house. I need you to do the dishes. I'll go pray about it. Her aunt said, you know, there are some things God wants you to pray for, some things he doesn't. This is one of those. Go do the dishes. Yeah, I get that. But boy, I'm going to tell you when it comes to things like careers or career changes, retirement questions, where you live, the church you attend, how you choose to educate your children, what college you'll attend, what major you'll take, all of that. Those decisions need to be preceded by prayer. Important decisions must be preceded by prayer. But then when you pray, it's not a, oh God, bless this decision I'm going to make in my life and you just go do it. Because then if it works out, see, God answers. But if it doesn't work out, well, where was God when I needed him? No, you pray and you wait. You pray and you wait. And you listen so that you can obey. God, show me what you want me to do so I can live in obedience. A good rule of thumb in my life has been this. If I have to make a snap decision on a life-changing event, then I had better wait until I know for sure. But there's another reason that we pray. Turn to the passage that we read earlier. Acts, or no, turn over just one chapter to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, we're going to come back and spend a lot of time here later. But in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, we have the beginning of people getting together. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Peter and all of those in the upper room are filled with the Spirit. They go out and they begin to speak and people hear them in their, <coughs> excuse me, in their languages, in their dialects. They're like, what? How are these people who are from Galilee speaking my language, speaking my dialect? I, I don't get that. And Peter eventually shares with them what has happened. He takes them through the process of what happened with Jesus. He finishes with quoting the, the prophet Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when the Holy Spirit explodes on the scene, several thousand come to know Christ and come into relationship and repent. And they start getting together. And look at just Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. When they got together, there were several things that happened, but one of the things they devoted themselves was prayer. And here's the second aspect of prayer this morning, is it's this overarching principle. Prayer unites us in relationship with God and one another. Prayer unites us in relationship with God and one another. These people were from different regions. They were from different countries even. But something that bound them together was their relationship with Christ expressed partially through prayer. There is an amazing unifying reality when we come together in heartfelt prayer. When prayer is based on my relationship with Father with the Father, through the Son, guided by the Holy Spirit, it is powerful. 
I have had the privilege of praying with people from other countries, and I didn't understand their language fully. I could pick out a word or two here. But in that moment of prayer, together, there was a bond. There was a unity that I can't fully describe. And I could feel and sense their heart. And and when I prayed in English, and, and they could feel and sense my heart, there was this bond together. And I would tell you, uniting prayer is not what I call instructive prayer, where I use my words to teach everybody else in the room. It's not gossiping prayer, where under the guise of prayer, I share stuff I know that maybe you ought to know, but I know I know it. And, 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 but, but, but it's because we're concerned. And, and it's not performance prayer, where I use my theological language and my flowery words to impress you and probably also impress God with how much I know and how flowery I can be. In fact, I'm going to just tell you right now, and I'm stepping on toes beginning with my own, I am less and less excited about beginning any sort of small group prayer with taking prayer requests. You say, Pastor Scott! Because what happens is there's a tendency to answer. Well, did you pray for this? Well, have they tried this? Well, have they, have they called this person? Oh, I have a friend they can call. And all of a sudden, I have put myself in the place of God, and I'm answering their prayer request. I believe the best thing to do is just to get together and start praying. Whether it's starting by praising God for who he is and then moving into the request, whatever else. But I do not want to put myself in the position of answering somebody's prayer request for God when my answer is not any better than anybody else's and I can only see just a little bit beyond my nose. Uniting prayer happens when we listen. We listen to one another pray. We listen to the Holy Spirit who will join us in agreement. We listen There's a lot more we can say about prayer. We're going to next week. Let me wrap it up this way. 20 years ago, people wanted to pray for a time. They wanted to talk to God. They wanted to cry out to God. They wanted to complain to God. They wanted to question God. And I believe God is big enough and gracious enough to handle that and more. But once the shock of the tragedy began to wear off, once life started moving again, once the economy started kind of cranking up again, once we felt safe again, the urgency to say something to God lessened. The desire to collect and be together in church waned. People sort of moved on. This morning, I want to give you and encourage you to give careful thought to your communication with God. Do you ever take time just to listen to Him? Have you ever just taken time to wait for the Holy Spirit to nudge you or prompt you in a way? Be careful that you don't treat God like a divine ATM where you put your credit card in and pull it out and punch in a couple things and he spits out exactly what you want. That's not relationship. My encouragement to you this coming week, 
take some time, even just for a couple of minutes, and practice being quiet before God. Oh, I get it. Silence can be really hard for some of us. And I get it because I know when, I'm try, when I work on that, and I do work on it, my mind goes about 482 different places. It takes time. It takes practice. But I would encourage you to learn to develop an awareness of the constant abiding presence of God the Holy Spirit in your life. We're going to sing a song in a few minutes that says, I'll paraphrase, but wherever I can go, God, you're already there. When you start taking time to just wait and experience the presence of God in your life, you are going to be taking the first step of communication with God. You see, individual prayer, individual and corporate prayer, is to be a core reality in any church, including this one. And that requires that we understand that prayer is communication between me and God. And when I understand that, then I realize that all my important decisions should be preceded by prayer. And as I pray, and as I begin to join others in prayer, I discovered that prayer will unite us in relationship with God and with one another. And as our prayer life grows, our faith will also grow. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for people just like us, Peter, John, the other apostles, the unnamed folks in that room, the people who've gone before us over the centuries, who have shown us and modeled for us relationship through prayer. Help us. The disciples one day came to you and said, teach us to pray. And so Holy Spirit, on behalf of those hearing me right now, I bring that same request. Teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.